Hello, girlfriends, and welcome to another awesome episode of Girl Skill Podcast, where I interviewed another amazing man. Honestly, this conversation, I think, was one of the most in-depth conversations I've had on this podcast. Yeah, well, I also asked some pretty deep questions, but my guest, whose name is Steve James, I'm like, what is this guy's name? He blew my mind, but I'm like, what is this guy's name? Anyway, Steve James is Michaela Bones' teaching partner. And for those of you who listen to Michaela Bones' podcast, it's number 106, girlskill.com, 106. Um, Steve teaches with her. And so I didn't know what to expect, but it was fascinating. So Steve James, also known as the Guru Viking, and he actually tells us the story why he's calling, calling himself the Guru Viking. He travels internationally teaching somatic practices, meditation, as well as leading explorations in contemplative, mystic, and relational realms. Steve is known for his direct, grounded approach and his dedication to first-hand research. He has extensive experience in elite athletic performance, contemplative and spiritual disciplines, the arts, extreme outdoor survival, human behavior. There's so much to Steve in his bio. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I really wanted to tell you what we talked about. So basically, Steve is living on a boat in England and is a fascinating guy. We talked right from the bat. I asked him, you know, what do you find attractive in a woman? And then he went into this whole multidimensional, multilayered, you know, exploration of what attraction is. And, and, you know, a woman is, first of all, a human being and all of that like it was amazing we talked about and we also talked about what's the x factor of attractiveness in a woman or a person actually we talked about success and purpose how does he define success and purpose and whether he feels successful and what is the meaning of life we talked a little bit about fear which i found quite interesting that he steve called fear an intelligent emotion and you'll find out why in the podcast And then, of course, we went talking about masculinity, femininity, gender roles, polarity, and all of that. And in fact, Steve has talked about these concepts in a very holistic way, which I tend to agree. And then also we went into a discussion about, you know, gender roles. And he actually helped me solidify my own concept and my teachings and coachings about femininity, masculinity, and that I agree with him fully that we first and foremost are human beings. And actually, there's more similarities to us, you know, between men and women, the differences and that the polarity or the femininity, feminine, masculine spectrum we choose to play in certain things. And then we ended up talking about intimacy and how he said that intimacy is actually a threat to roles and strategies. Then we clarified what all that means. So then we finished the podcast, of course, and then I started asking him more questions because the, the, the conversation was so fascinating. So we pressed the record button again and then we finished up with two subjects. One, we talked a bit about polarity, and I agree with him. It was fascinating how he said that, you know, polarity or, oh, you should do this in order to be more feminine or the masculine are just marketing gimmicks. And that actually, it's it's not the foundation of a relationship, which I agree. The foundation of a relationship are things like, you know, generosity and authenticity and how well you blend together as a couple, as a unit. And then polarity is a thing that defines like it's a skill that can be learned. And, you know, in my coaching and teachings about femininity, it's that I tend to define it in certain ways simply because that's what I'm fascinated by. That's my area of research. But it was great. And then we talked about menstruality and feminine masculine leadership. So anyways, girlfriend, stay until the end because this conversation is fascinating. All right. Enjoy. Girl skill. Female success. Redefined. All right, girl skill listeners. Today we have a very special man coming from a very special place from a boat in England. Steve James, uh, welcome to Girl Skill. Thank you. <laughs> I, I gave you such an energetic intro, and then you're like so chill on the boat in England. Thank you. So humble. <laughs> so why are you on a boat, uh, Steve? It's difficult not to be chill on a boat. Yeah, yeah. why are you on a boat? Well, <laughs> why am I on a boat? Yeah, most of the time I travel around and I you know, spend quite a lot of time in California and traveling around teaching. But technically, my postal address is this boat. So I have a, a narrow boat, 59 foot long, six foot 10 wide, narrow boat on the English canals. Wow, that's amazing. How did you come to, mm-hmm. to, to make the decision and live on a boat? Is it a conscious, I mean, I'm sure it's a conscious decision, but why did you decide that? Yeah, well, I was living in London and I was traveling so much that whenever I came back to London, I always just would go to the park. I used to live, anyone who knows London, I used to live in Blackheath yeah. near Greenwich Park. 
So I would just go there in the day, you know, uh, to chill out and to, you know, do, do things you do in the park. And I thought, well, why, why am I living in the middle of the city and then going to the park? I should just live in the park. And I, and I thought, well, okay, live in the park, live in the park. I could be homeless. No, that's not, I've got too many books for that. I could just live in the countryside. No, what if I live kind of, so the boat is a sort of a, if you want a halfway house between being a totally homeless vagabond and still having somewhere to store my books and make some coffee. That's right. That's all, Matt. You live a simple life, Steve. Make some coffee and store your books. That's all you need, really. I mean, who needs all that other stuff, Yeah, you know? <laughs> all right, Steve. Well, this was a fun intro. Uh, so let's get into today's episode. And I'm very, very grateful that you've decided to actually join me and accept this invitation because as a lot of my listeners know, I've interviewed Michaela Boehm, who is actually your teaching, well, I'd say, would you call her your teaching partner in mm -hmm. workshops around the world? That'd be fair to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I've interviewed her and I'm actually taking her course right now. And we talk with her all about the superwoman syndrome and the power of rewilding. And she wrote the book, The Wild mm. Woman's Way. And so when I was thinking about who to interview from men to talk about masculinity, masculine leadership, and where do men fit in today's, let's say, feminism, and how do we all figure this whole thing out because it's super messy, I was like, wow, I should interview Stephen, the other half of Michaela, in terms of you know teaching and uh, facilitating workshops on intimacy, polarity, and embodiment. So here you are, Steve. But before you tell us, in your own words, what you do and who you are, I have a few questions for you. So the first one being, and this is, I ask every man these questions. So the first one is, Steve, what do you find attractive in a woman? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. For me anyway, part of intimacy, part, one of the interesting parts of it is the discovering and the uncovering of a person. And, you know, to go in too attached to preconceived ideas, I think can obscure a little bit the discovering the unique qualities of a person. But, you know, to me, I think when you really look at a person, the most fascinating thing is that there's someone in there. There's sentience, there's awareness, consciousness, spark of life. You know, there's something mysterious about that spark in there. Uh, you know, the way a person thinks, the way they articulate their perspective. I like to experience that and see that happening. I like to see sensing happening, sensory experience, emotion you know, and the interaction and the synchronization of those processes between two people is interesting for me. You know, and there are contextual and temporal dimensions as well. What I mean by that is contextual, meaning there are different sorts of attraction. Attraction is not a monolithic thing. Someone finds attractive in a person that they'd like to start a business with or a person they'd like to, you know, if you're meeting a surgeon who's going to perform surgery on you, certain qualities will be appealing about that sort of a person or someone you might want to have a romantic relationship with. But even that breaks down further. What kind of romantic relationship? You know, someone as a potential person to build a family with, someone as a sexual partner, you know, there's all sorts of different kinds. So it's a little bit or depends both. on the context. And then the temporal dimension, <laughs> is this, this is a longer answer than you expected. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. It's fascinating. Please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what feels good right now isn't always the same as what feels good in the mid to short term depending on how calibrated, you know, we are to the bigger picture, you know, what our sort of delayed gratification equation is like inside and people have different equations there. Sometimes you do something uh, in a state of attraction or excitement or arousal and your sober self the next day, I mean sober not because you were drunk, but because you were drunk on attraction, you know, it's the sober you the next day or the next week or whatever has to has to live with the consequences of that action so there's an interesting play between the temp the temporal or you know across time dimension mm -hmm. and i think that's you know partly that's because something that i often think about when i hear people uh, you know talk about attraction is there are a lot of things different things happening when we feel attraction when we're attracted to somebody at least initially it's very rarely the person themselves that we're attracted to because we don't know them it's the idea of the person or the possibility that they represent. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very fascinating to explore the anatomy of attraction or the anatomy of desire in one's own experience. And when we break down what we're experiencing when we you know, are attracted to somebody, there's a whole bundle of different threads. There's bodily elements, 
emotional elements, psychological elements, all these little threads woven into a rope that we experience as I'm attracted to that person. And I think very often acting on attraction depends upon either willful or unconscious ignoring of the component parts of the attraction. If we really knew what it was we were attempting to do, if we really knew what we were feeding or what outcomes we were steering towards bit by bit, thread by thread, when we act on an attraction or when we experience attraction, I think, at least in my experience, when we see the component parts of what makes up our attraction, it very often loses its glamour, its driving force. <laughs> so I, I like to clarifying the anatomy of attraction is an interesting frontier for me. And uh, asking the question, you know, what's left when it's deconstructed? You know, what's left when the ambitious element of attraction is deconstructed? <laughs> you gave me a very sophisticated answer for a very simple question. Well, in my mind, it was simple, <laughs> but apparently it's not. So that's that's really interesting. But like, okay, let's let's put it down to you. You know, assuming you are heterosexual and attracted to women, I'm not sure actually. So this, because you talk about multi-dimensions, so maybe you are attracted to both sexes, or um, you know, because you talk so roundly about this subject, and you say a person. So I haven't heard you talking about a woman specifically, but I guess my main thing was like if you walk somewhere and you sit at a bar or whatever. What kind of women are you attracted to, for example? Assuming that you're heterosexual, I don't know. Yeah. The problem with women is... <laughs> I'm saying this <laughs> the problem thing. with women pro is... <laughs> yeah. The pro finally, I get my platform. Yeah. The, the problem with women is that they're people as well. They're not just, I don't know, objects of attraction. But I take your point. Uh, what am I attracted to? Yeah, that's the thing. It depends what you mean. I mean, sometimes for whatever reason, maybe it's geometry, just the shape of a person can inspire a certain excitement. Sometimes someone's interested in you can inspire a kind of excitement. It depends what it is one expects, what is one moving towards with the attraction? Is it just purely carnal or biological urge to merge? Or is it, some, or is it something else? And sometimes I think experience can season that biological urge, a little bit anyway, can season it. And one can say, well, this person looks very nice, but they're, they're a bit <laughs> dead in the eyes or whatever. And you start hmm. to think, um, you know, actually... You see through some of these superficial things, but things that I find you know attractive in a bar, of course, it's going to be a combination of physical things and body language things and what you can detect from the way they're interacting with their environment to answer mm. your question specifically about the bar. Mm -hmm. So for the, in terms of the physical side, people come in all shapes and sizes. And I think how a person carries themselves is really the X factor. Is a person in touch with their body? Are they essentially alive? There's something about that that can make a person whose shape you're not normally, you wouldn't normally on paper say, this is my type. It can make that shape very appealing, very attractive, very sexy. And I think there's something about the way someone carries themselves. And, and to, there can be a certain extent how one's interacting with their environment, with the people that they're talking to and so on. That can also turn heads, I think. Yeah, yeah, I got it. But that's that's the bar level. I mean, there's <laughs> there's more for a relationship. But yeah. yeah, and it is a hard question, you know, for me. I mean, I didn't think about it this way, but obviously you teach perhaps this subject as well and, you know, answering questions about intimacy and polarity. And, and so what I got from here is for you, Steve, it's not that black and white. It's multidimensional. We got to think about, you know, what are the layers of attraction, what kind of attraction we're talking about. And also, as you mentioned, what kind of, a, I guess, mood or state you were in specifically. So that's interesting. Yes. Mm, cool. All right. So moving on. Yeah, I think this interview is going to be about three hours, Steve, because I feel like uh, every question. Uh, okay, you know, I'll try to be concise. No, that's fine. I, I love it. I mean, I didn't expect, you know, such a deep, profound answer to my first question. But anyways, moving on. Do you find yourself successful and why? Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> Another so one. I. I yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, s success isn't a word I think about very much. Mm -hmm. I do think that I'm very fortunate. And the good circumstances that I have, you know, in my life are really the result of a bit of luck, I think, and, and the kindness of other people being in the right place at the right time and, and meeting the right sorts of people at the right time and 
you know, it's not something you can really plan. But I think if you're free to spend your energy in a way that's meaningful to you and contributes to others, which I feel I can do most of the time, then I think you're very successful. You're very fortunate. So I suppose mm-hmm. it depends what you mean by success. But yeah, I think I, in, by that frame, spending my time and energy on something that's meaningful to me and contributes to other people, I'd say I'm very, very successful, very fortunate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, great. And Steve, what is your purpose? Yeah, I found that such an odd word to use about a human being. <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> makes me think of like a, it makes me think of a garden tool or something, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have goals and things and goals with have certain metrics and, and waypoints and so on. But, but really, you know, like I said, if I could spend my time and energy on this earth in a way that I find meaningful and that contributes to others, I think that would be good. That would be a good purpose, you know, a good, uh, raison d'etre or a good mission mm, yeah so i feel like that yeah but your purpose is connected to your success or how you know defined success which is meaningful ways and to contribute to others which makes sense yeah so what mm. do you think is this whole idea of people looking for purpose and like what is my purpose why are we answering this question and, and what's the answer to that question so your question is why do people feel an, a sort of attraction to this idea of purpose yeah, yeah. Why are we constantly, because all I can hear, you know, is women and men, both of us, all humans are uh. like, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? So it's almost like our goal in life is to find our purpose, which you seem not agree necessarily. Well, uh, what what sort of things do people say their purpose is when they're talking to you about that? Well, that's the thing. I haven't, like, I've defined an answer for me, uh, which actually released myself from this pressure because I I came to the conclusion that for me, the purpose of life is to experience life in its full spectrum, you know, just experience life. That's the purpose of life. Mm -hmm. But others would would consider it, oh, my purpose is uh, like to find, or another way actually, which I also see a bit beneficial i guess is they say my purpose is to find my calling which i would see i would kind of agree with that or relate to that but others would be like oh my purpose is to be i don't know a high-powered executive or to conquer the world but it's this attachment to finding your purpose is i feel like so many people are driven by and i'm just trying i mean i guess to answer my own question people need something to live their life, to attach their life to. So they have a purpose that it's meaningful, I suppose. Yeah. Right. So your purpose then, you're saying there is to uh, experience life in its fullness. Mine, Do, yes. Is, in that mm-hmm. purpose, is there any sense of preference as to as to which aspects of life you'd like to experience? In other words, in its fullness, does that mean you'd equally like to experience pain and pleasure to the extremes, that sort of thing? Or is it more an attitude towards your life rather than... Well, I don't think I would love to experience pain <laughs> at the extreme, but I understand that, you know, like if I want to experience extreme pleasure or go to at least to that side of the spectrum, then pain is inevitable. You know, suffering is optional, but pain is inevitable. So that, yeah, like sensationally, you know, in embodied, like my senses would have to be explored. I'd love to experience that as my life's purpose, but also just different life experiences, I suppose, like, as you said, attitudes, but also expose myself to, you know, traveling the world, connecting with people, doing meaningful work, experiencing life at its full potential, you know, whether it is being present in this moment with you, Steve, and really being connected or being connected Mm -hmm. to my body or just what it like, what it means to be exploring what it means to be alive, a human and also being a female body. Well, for me personally. Yeah. I (laughs) think, I think being a female body is a purpose for a lot of people. That's a bit of a a joke there, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, yeah, that's very interesting. One has certain sort of values. You know, the thing is, we have a lot of freedom here in the developed world. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of freedom to do lots of different things, uh, you know, uh, relatively speaking. So with that freedom comes a lot of choice. Then it becomes a a case of how do we organize the choices that we have in some sort of a hierarchy? How do we determine to go left rather than right, or to take this job rather than that job, or to spend our time doing this or that? And then how do we organize that hierarchy? And that is organized, I think, by our values, what we value, what we think is important in life. And that's why a lot of people 
do turn to religion or they do turn to, you know, self-help or things like that, because there at a lot of those places, there's a clearly articulated hierarchy of values, which helps us to organize our decision and our choice, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about purposes, what are you going to do with your day? Of course, that'll change day to day. That'll change year to year. That has to be somewhat flexible, I think, in order to respond to the situation. But your your values are also somewhat flexible. But I think that's what helps you choose what to point yourself at on any given day. Mm. You know, and so examining our values, what are important to us, what do we mean when we express ourselves? What do we, what are we actually saying here? I think that's extremely useful to clarify, you know, things like purpose. Because I think personally, I think I could be very happy and fulfilled doing lots of different jobs in lots of different things. And you know, sometimes I do fantasize about that. I fantasize about doing other jobs or doing different things. And I think there's actually quite a lot of activity I could be doing that would line up with my basic values that I'd feel would be meaningful. I'm not particularly attached to the job I'm doing, especially, Mm -hmm. or even the way in which my job impacts people or anything like that. I'm not especially attached to that. It just seems like the best thing to do at the moment in terms of my values and in terms of the situation that I'm in. It just seems like, you know, the obvious choice, but that's certainly subject to review. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And so last question before we give you a chance to introduce yourself, Steve, because I think all the listeners are are like, who is this guy on a boat talking about multidimensional attraction and purpose of life? Um, (laughs) I have a serious question for you, Steve. What is your biggest fear? Mm. Well, before I answer that, I think, you know, one of the reasons people are interested in purpose is, and this is something to keep an eye on, is that it is a nice way to settle or stop the energy required for that investigation that I just described there about values and and Mm. so on. If one can, in a certain sense, find the purpose, find something, an end to the inquiry, and then you you don't have to pay attention anymore. You can just sort of plow on and and put that sort of existential question to, you know, to rest. Because I think you said it very well. People say, what's my purpose? They may be thinking, what should I do for my job? But you, you went straight to what's the meaning of life? You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's where that question really goes. Mm-hmm. Actually, really, it goes there. It's like, what's my job? Well, what do you mean? Well, what job should I do? Well, what are your values? Uh, okay, w- where do those values come from? You know, what is a human being? And you've intuited that, I think, and you've thought your way through to what is the meaning of life, and you've got your answer for that. And I, you know, that's a very big question, and it's a question that might not be answerable in any final sense. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it ha- it's an open loop that's going to go on. And I think that if we can learn to simmer like a sausage in the pan in that open loop, then it's the best kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's a good place to be. I love it. Uh, but uh, what's my greatest fear? Yeah, I love this. Sim- simmering the sausage in the pan. Uh, let's leave the audience and myself with this metaphor for the meaning of life. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It could be a vegan sausage, if you like. Corn. <laughs> Yes, doesn't yes. have to be. I prefer a yeah. normal sausage simmering in the pan. <laughs> All right, moving on, Steve. What's your biggest, my biggest fear? fear? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my biggest fear. Yeah, oh, I should really have one-liners for these, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fear. You know, I do feel fear. Fear is, I think, very often a kind of state of readiness in the face of the unknown or the possibility of. A sort of unquantified threat. The thing itself isn't usually as frightening as the possibility of the thing. Usually, I think we're not afraid of something. We're afraid of the possibility of something or the impending arrival of something or what's it going to be like, the unknown qualities in a certain sense. So I think I tend to feel fear or anxiety in that way, in anticipation. It's a very intelligent emotion. It's a kind of a wake-up call. It's kind of an ally in a way. It's sort of it's what you feel, what's one of the things you feel when you don't, when you haven't mapped what's going to happen yet. You haven't got any experience for it, you know. I think that's what I have to say about that. Hmm. So what is one that is your biggest one that maybe you're wrestling with at the moment or in the last, you know, month or so or in the last year? <laughs> mm-hmm. A fear that I've wrestled with in the last month or the last year. Hmm. 
Seems like you don't have any fears, Steve, if you have to think about it. <laughs> uh, well, it's uh, not some of the case. It's not that I don't feel fear or it's sort of, you know, cousin mm. anxiety and so on. But, mm-hmm. you know, I can't think of a very good answer there. I mean, my it's a general thing that I feel sometimes when I, in anticipation of something. It's very interesting. If I'm worried about something or afraid of something, very often I'll just try to imagine it happening and really follow through that, you know, that thing. Imagine it happens the whole way through. Uh, I say, okay, let's say this thing happens, this thing I'm a bit worried about, or I'm very worried about, and I'll try and follow it through. Okay, so this happens, and then that happens. And what would I do in the situation if I had to rebuild um, my life in this way or readjust my life if some sort of a thing happened? What would I do? And, you know, I think uh, something that always a little bit reassured me was I remember hearing about, and I don't, this is one of those studies of shown thing, but I don't, I didn't read the study. Uh, they did apparently some kind of uh, study where they interview people's happiness, and I think it was people who were were put in wheelchairs or they were paralyzed or some, something like that, uh, or had some terrible accident, something like that. And they found that people were about as happy a year later, no matter what happened to them, more or less, after this sort of accident, as they were before. People sort of have a set point or that adversity can come your way and it can really knock you down. But eventually people tend to find their level. I've kind of assumed that that would be the case. I think things out of my control are, are frightening. Bad things happening to people I love uh, mm-hmm. is is a source of emotional distress that's larger than a bad thing happening to me. Because if it's happening to me in a certain sense, you can, you know, deal with it, make the most of it, grapple with it. Mm. But if it's happening to somebody else that you love, I think that's the most distressful thing. So we could say bad things, you know, in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So now, Steve, please tell yeah. us who you are and what you do. Well, you know, you live in a boat where you drink coffee and have your books. But in terms of like professional <laughs> yeah. life, I suppose, or whatever comes to mind, <laughs> introduce yourself. Yeah. As you mentioned at the beginning there, uh, you know, I spend most of my time uh, working with Michaela, Michaela Bohem, teaching workshops and so on. And and it's sort of the, my interests really are in working with people, meditation, movement, and, you know, things like that. We, in our workshops, we deal a lot with relationships and, and things of that nature. And Michaela, as you, as you know, is a very experienced and skilled relationship counselor and so on. So sort of the intersection between those things, you know, we work a lot with very high-performing people, in, in our private practice and in terms of workshops, all kind of things, you know, meditation, movement, relationship, using the body, using experience, using relationship as a portal, I'd say, or as a as a venue for exploration of life, of, of experience, uh, of, that, of that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, practically that means we teach workshops, we do, you know, private sessions, we have online courses, you know, we have podcasts, yeah. you know, things, things like that. Yeah. yeah. And you also call yourself on your website and you have a podcast called uh, Guru, the Guru Viking. So I'm very curious, yeah. how did that combination of words uh, come around to naming your brand and I guess yourself and your podcast? Yeah. How did I come up with the name of Guru Viking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just don't think Steve is a particularly... <laughs> doesn't have a ring to it steve.com you know you know in a way so yeah I, it's funny actually i was at a you know it's a sort of english humor thing i think or a british humor thing i was at a, a meditation retreat once and at that place they were selling some of my dvds i have some dvds uh downloads as well of a you know movement coin method a kind of way of mm-hmm. using moving meditation you could say or moving explorations um they were selling my dvds there and i was there and it was a silent retreat so we were there for whatever 10 days in silence, and that I was also a little bit, te- you know, teaching each day a little bit of movement classes, leading some movement classes, sort of volunteering to do it. And at the end of the silent retreat, you can talk to each other. You know, you have a final lunch and everyone talks to each other. And one of the good things about a silent retreat, meditation retreat, is that nobody talks to you. And you might think, oh, that's terrible. And I thought that at first as well. My first retreat, I thought, gosh, this is going to be so hard to be silent for all this time. But then when you start to talk to people afterwards, you think, oh, thank God. I didn't, you know, thank God nobody was talking to each other because, you know, all kinds of weird and wonderful people are there. 
you know, and, and you don't have to deal with anybody, basically. You can just get on with the meditation and so on. And, and that's, I think, a really, a really good thing about silent retreats. Anyway, it was a bit frosty. It was a little group that were a little bit frosty with me. And uh, I was pouring myself some, here it is again, coffee. And the guy said to me, uh, I said, oh, I knew the guy. I said, oh, how's it, how's it going? And he sort of, you know, kind of blanked me a bit. And I said to him, are we okay? What's the problem? Do, do we have an issue here? And he said, uh, huh, so you're a guru, are you? And I said, what? And he said, so you're a guru, are you? This was in America. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I know I noticed your DVDs on the table there, you know, that have been sold throughout the retreat. And, you know, interesting now that you're calling yourself a guru. And I said, oh, okay. I said, do you think that I actually think I'm actually a guru? And he said, uh, yeah. I said, how many people agree with that? Well, there's two or three of us. Some of the old guard, you know, were a little bit had the nose out of joint that I was going around calling myself a guru. They didn't realize, of course, that it's the sort of company name, the brand name sort of thing. So I had to say to him, no, no, no. You know, I'm not a Viking either. You know that, right? Oh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and then we had, a bit, we had a good laugh about it, you know. But it's, you know, it's a sort of, it represents a combination of, of my interests and, you know, my traits. You know, I'm interested in, you know, I, I'm in a teaching role or a facilitating role. And I suppose, you know, uh, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, to say that, you know, my website's serious, you know, it's not a spoof website, Bunny Stretch, but there's something a little tongue in cheek about calling yourself Guru Viking, which mm. I, I like that. It keeps a bit of humor. It keeps a bit of levity in the entire endeavor, which I quite like. And, you know, uh, the Viking part, you know, I don't know if you've, you've seen pictures of me or anything, but I've got a big red beard and, you know, I do go out and do survival courses and stuff in the middle of nowhere in the mm. Arctic and stuff. So, you know, yeah. and I, Grew up on the Shetland Islands, which is a very Vikingy sort of a place, uh, you know. So it's uh, that's what it, that's what it comes down to. Mm, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing with us this story. I was like, "Guru, mm, that's interesting. I wonder what what's that about." So now we know. Yeah. So Steve, let's get into actually the the meat, the sausage of our the sausage on the what did you say frying on the pan of our conversation, so to say, the meat of it all, um, uh-huh. and talk about masculinity okay. and masculine leadership. I'm sure you're not going to answer this question as as I would like it to be answered, I guess. But anyways, what is masculinity? <laughs> uh, how, how would you like it to be answered? Oh, God, I don't know. I don't know. Because I think like with my experience with you for half an hour, I think you are going to answer it in a very like deeply spiritual way and not in a way that... <laughs> I don't know. You can answer it in your own guru Viking way, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, because usually, like I ask men, what is masculinity, and um, and you know there is a certain. I, I guess I have an expectation, actually, you know, from men that I interview that they are going to say, and, you know, looking at you mm. and knowing you and your work and that you do survival, you know, you go and do survival trainings and being in the Arctic and all of that. And I assume that you connect to masculinity in the sense of it being, mm. you know, strength, presence, endurance. I, I, I don't know, but I have a sense that you're going to give me a multidimensional answer mm. to everything. So I'm going to drop all assumptions and just ask my questions and let you answer them in the way mm-hmm. that you feel called to answer them. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, strength, presence, and, and endurance. Okay, as a, as masculine traits. Yeah, I think those that's those are good traits for any person to have. And I think of a a mother, you know, mm. let's say in a difficult situation or raising a family and so on. And I think words like strength you know, presence and endurance can be very, very much applied to a, a mother's attention to a child and her endurance during the day and her strength to sort of get up again in the night when she doesn't want to and she's tired or something like that or the sort of thing. A mother's, uh, you know, tiger mother protecting her cubs or something like that. But yeah, so anyway... I think, yeah, when you ask, think about something like masculinity, I always think the first thing we have to do is to find the terms. Because the words masculine or feminine, they can mean different things depending on the context. And it's not that there's one meaning that's correct. It can be correctly used in different contexts. You know, for instance, I can put my coffee on the table or I can table a motion at a meeting. And there, it's the same word. It's not that one of those words is more accurately being used than the other. It's just that they're used in different contexts. So 
I sometimes think about what are some of the ways in which these words are used. So, you know, masculine can refer to traits or behaviors that men tend to exhibit. And there's an interaction there between both biological and cultural influences. Mm-hmm. And some people uh, think that it's more one or the other or, or, or something, but there's certainly a, a, at least some sort of a combination there. And femininity is referring, I think, can refer to traits or behaviors that women tend to exhibit. And there's also an interaction there between biological and cultural differences. Yeah. But I think people are mostly the same. And so then it becomes sort of a bit more about the differences. And because of the female, the male-female dyad, you know, in reproduction, masculine and feminine are also used as as a sort of the archetypal dyad analogy in many different contexts. For you know, I used to work in the music industry. And in studios, you have these cables called XLR cables that you plug into microphones. And they have a male and a female end, right? The male end's got the pins and the female end's mm-hmm. got the holes in it. And you put them in there together. And it's not because they're actually male or female. It's just sort of used as an analogy. Certain spiritual traditions talk about masculine and feminine in all sorts of different ways, in very different ways, actually. You know, as forces or energies within the individual, the solar and the lunar, you know, forces. Or sometimes it's extended out to describe the nature of reality, Shiva and Shakti, or it can also be representation of the non-dual union of form and emptiness or compassion and wisdom. Uh, you find that in the imagery of the Yabyam in Tantric Buddhism or, or Tantrism in general. And Jungian analysis talks about the masculine and feminine parts of the psyche, the animus and the anima. And there's, there's an idea in Jungian analysis that the contrasexual parts need to be integrated rather than suppressed. A man can be possessed by his anima a woman can be possessed by her animus, which is sort of mm-hmm. repressed, contrasexual uh, elements that are, are in there. You know, the, the idea that men suppress their, their feminine aspects or females, uh, women suppress their male or uh, masculine aspect. And that can cause problems. And part of the analysis, you know, theory is to excavate some of those things and integrate them in a certain sense. There's, it's used in lots of different ways. I think there's, you know, a common confusion there, which is that the analogy only extends so far. For instance, it might be said that because men tend to exhibit this behavior, that's how a man should act. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. There is variation among men. Um, men are people before they're men. As, and as mm-hmm. I mentioned before, I think, you know, women are people as well before they're women. And, you know, and because, you know, you sometimes hear, because Shiva sits in meditation as the witness of the play of Shakti, Men should meditate and women should dance. In fact, women shouldn't meditate because it will make them masculine. You do hear that uh, quite a bit. I've heard that a lot. And, but just because we use the archetype of masculine and feminine as a way of describing reality, because just because we might do that, it doesn't mean that that works in reverse as a definition or a code of conduct for men and women. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when we think about gender roles, you know, I do think that there have been some fundamental shifts in the developing countries anyway, in the cultural aspect of how gender roles are defined, which isn't the same as masculine and feminine, as I pointed out, but, and this becomes particularly clear in relationships. You know, what is a man actually? How should a man act? What is a woman actually? How should she act? You know, and we have ideas like gender fluidity and so on, you know, the interaction between sex, gender identity, sexuality, and so on. You know, that's what I mean when I say, what is a man actually? You know, what is the essence of a man? What is the essence of a woman? Is there an immutable dimension or a limit to that characterization or that category? You know, but within the heterosexual context in the developed countries of the world, uh, relationships just don't serve the same purpose they used to. Men and women don't need each other in the same way. When my mother was, uh, got married, married my uh, father, she couldn't get a mortgage actually because she was a woman. Women weren't allowed in those days to get a mortgage, so they couldn't own a house. You know, but now and, and they could they couldn't, couldn't do other things as well. But now women in developed countries, they don't need a man for things like a mortgage or to make an income. I, mean, I remember my mother once telling me that when she was, um, you know, graduating high school and so on. It was just around that time that it, there was this sort of new idea that, you know, you don't have to be a nurse. You could be a doctor as a woman. You know? <laughs> it's hard to imagine that when most medical school graduates now, the majority of them are women now, you know, as doctors. But in, the, in those days, it's like, well, you know, you don't have to be a nurse. You're a bright girl. You, you could be a doctor. Wow, that's, that's a novel idea. That's kind of radical. 
you know. <laughs> but I, I hear a lot of women talking about relationships and a lot of people talking about relationships and many, many, many are asking, you know, what's the point? And I ask people, why are you in relationship? What do you want to be in relationship for? And very few people can answer that right away. It's, an, it's, it's, it's an assumption, I think, that we ought to just be in, you know, we just ought to be in relationship. And I think there are lots of good re- reasons to be in relationship, but the assumption that it's automatically a good thing is, is questionable. Terms like masculine and feminine, I think these days are much more open in developing countries. And there's places, there's places in the world where that's not the case. You know? Yeah. In terms of gender roles, these days it's, it's more open. And anyway, the last thing to, that I think about this sometimes mm-hmm. is the interesting question is, you know, what, what is a good person in a way? We have a lot more freedom in developed countries to plot our own course as individuals. With that freedom comes a little bit the responsibility to think for ourselves, to be able to navigate our own inner and outer lives. If that tends to express a certain way for men or tends to express a certain way for women, that will unfold naturally without, yeah, that's, that's sort of what I think in a mm-hmm. way, to focus mm-hmm. on the layer beneath the gender expression or the gender role yeah. is a bit more fruitful. It doesn't eliminate those differences. It, it might even enhance them, but it's a different way of looking at the question. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for this. Uh, it was very multi-layered, as I've expected, and and great. Thanks for portraying this. And in fact, Steve, I think I agree with you 100%. To be honest with you, so far, I think this answer has been the most comprehensive that when I ask, because I ask women, what is femininity? And then I ask men, what is masculinity? Yeah. And I think you have given us uh, quite an unbiased, almost like not not neutral, but overcompassing answer to the, you know, feminine, masculine. And then I like how you combined, you know, the cultural forces versus biological and how it's in different theories and religions and all of that. And I also thought about this, you know, because I'm exploring femininity and and womanhood Mm -hmm. and what it means to be a woman. And I just had a baby, you know, seven months ago. And I've stepped on the polarity spectrum in my relationship and, you know, in my marriage. And I have seen it transformed. I have seen my life and my relationship transformed as I stepped onto the feminine pole. And that's my preference. And I understand that I choose to play that role. So it's not like, you know, this is me and that's it. But I choose to play Mm. it. And I see what you mean, because I thought about this, because we are first people. And there is much more, as you mentioned, similarities between us than differences. But I guess why I'm asking this question is because the the podcast that I have and the work that I do and in my own exploration and talking to women, it seems to be, and as you mentioned, perhaps it has to do that we are in the Western world and now women are like, well, you know, how did this all work and everything is changing. A woman doesn't need a man to do the same things. But it seems to me that because I have stepped on this journey, I am attracting women and a lot of the listeners of this podcast are also women who are, it's, it would seem to be more fulfilled by playing the feminine role. And for me personally, it has been my experience, especially when we're talking about biology, when I got pregnant. You know, for me, everything mm-hmm. has very clearly almost like have be, has been put in the shelves that they were supposed to be put. <laughs> you know, because when I felt oh, pregnant as a woman, I couldn't go to work and I couldn't protect well or provide as a as a mother yes I can play that certain mm-hmm. masculine but fundamentally and I think you know what you mean because probably people ask you that in a workshop and it works great for me and I find that a lot of women also feel more fulfilled by leaning out by relaxing by not playing the masculine pole in their relationships interesting yeah interesting uh, yeah, I, I hear that quite a bit as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a real kind of worms you're opening up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's what, interesting when you say that. You know, here, yeah. Just to go back to... Yeah. No, no, it's very clear what you said. It's not that you're not being clear. It's just mm. that, that you just said an awful lot of very interesting things. The thing about, you know, when you say about playing the... You made a very interesting distinction where you said that you play the feminine role mm-hmm. um, or you step, you know, you step on the feminine pole uh, as a sort of... Set, set of behaviors or a disposition that you express so as to achieve a certain outcome, which I presume you said is polarity. So I assume that means uh, sort of uh, kind of chemistry or a zing or excitement within the relationship, yeah, sexual or just a sort of a pleasant interaction with the two of you. I mean, is that what you mean? 
Yeah, and that's what creates and sustains attraction. I find, you know, uh-huh. at least in my opinion, like, you know, after three years being with my husband, I find he's, because he's also playing the masculine, I find it very uh, yeah. attractive. I feel provided and protected. I feel secure with him to play in my feminine pole, to take yeah. care of my baby, to not worry about the money. You know, all of that, that is more of a traditional gender role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know they're changing, but it like the listeners right. of this podcast and the women that I'm working with are the women who want that. And it seems like there's a lot of women who still want that, despite what, you know, the gender yeah. all changing climate today. That's why my next question was to you, like, where do men or where do I guess men who want to play still the masculine pole, where do they fit in today's feminism? Because everything is changing, changing and we're all confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you what you're saying there is very, very good or very important, actually. Let's just take it on, on one layer. You've worked a kind of division of labor or a way of configuring yourself in your relationship where you're looking after the child and so on. And, and I, I, you know, I don't know the rest of the configuration, but that seems to work for the two of you. And that's your prerogative within, within your couple. The fact that it happens to look like a traditional, you know, gender role that you, you know, that you would have had to have done in the past, because you wouldn't have had any other choice Mm -hmm. is not really a relevant factor. It's, I mean, that's the funny thing about choice. If we talk about feminism or we talk about, you know, women having choice, more choice anyway, if you know that includes presumably i mean i i think it ought to include of course you can go off and be a you know career person or whatever but you could also be a mother at home if you can't if you can no longer do that then you haven't got more choice you've just got a different restriction you know a different uh, mm-hmm. uh lack of choice now you can't stay at home because you're betraying you know the cause or something like that so it's i think it's if it works for you great you know and you made also a very interesting distinction i think that you said that you play these roles or you do these behaviors and it keeps the attraction alive and has a nice sort of feeling with each other. And you said, but it's not me. It's not me. It's not, doesn't define you. It's a behavior you do. And I think that's a very smart because the big problem comes when people start to, they ask a question like what's masculinity or what's femininity. They're looking to define themselves by that phrase. They're looking for an identity statement, basically. And that can, mm. that's very limiting. That's where we come to things like, well, women are like this, or men are like that, or I, I want to, you know, I want to be a feminine person. So, this this set of behaviors is off limits to me, or I must do this, or I must do that. And I listen to a lot of people talking about femininity. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk to me about masculinity and femininity. I do, you know, listen to a lot of that, and it seems to me, you know, a lot of what people are saying when they talk about femininity is, you know, getting in touch with their bodies, getting in touch with what they want, figuring out which is really a way of figuring out uh, how to navigate uh, through life or figuring out what they're feeling and, th- and this sort of thing. you know. And of course, there's another as- aspect of it, which is it is a, a mating strategy. What are the behaviors I can exhibit to find a man, a good man, and keep him interested and keep me interested as well so I don't get bored? And that's a lot of what guys are you know, often thinking when they think about masculinity. You know, I mean, there's the broader sense of how can I be a man in the world, you know, but often Mm. it's a dating strategy. You know, what are the things that I can do to attract a woman? You know, you often hear that, you know, I want to be trustable and so on. But often what men mean by that is I want women to be attracted to me. It's basically what they're saying. And a lot of this sort of spiritual dating, uh, spiritual, you know, sacred sexual sort of uh, sphere advice, it's just dating advice, basically, with spiritual labels, teaching guys how to exhibit traits and behaviors that make them attractive. And that's fine so long as it's not confused with who they fundamentally are. And that often gets confused. You know, I often say that, you know, people often talk about things like presence, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, if men men are doing things, sometimes you hear them do this to train their, you know, to to become, I don't know if this, if your listeners have experienced this before, but, you know, often you'll hear in certain circles, I want a present man, a man, Mm -hmm. a man who's got a capacity to base, you know, to sustain attention. And I sometimes say that just because, and so often people train in appearing to be something, or they train in appearing mm-hmm. to be something and confuse the appearance of something with the thing itself. For instance, if I say to you, just because, well, how do I say this? If I come into your office there and I'm soaking wet and you say, why are you wet? And I say, I got rained on. And that's fair enough. I got rained on. 
and I got wet. And then I come in the next day and I'm wet again. And you say, aha, you're wet. It must have been raining. Uh, you must have got rained on. And I say, no, actually, I fell in a swimming pool. <laughs> you know, aha, both outcomes. It's true that if I get rained on, I'll be wet. But it's not true that just because I'm wet, it's because I got rained on. So you could say that, you know, certain traits or behaviors could be the consequence of a, coming from a good place, you know, coming from trustability, coming from sensuality, coming from, you know, connected to your sensual nature and so on. It's true that that may have certain clues, but mm -hmm. just because you manifest the signs of that thing, it doesn't mean it's coming from the thing that it appears to be coming from. So uh, that's something I think is quite important. And the funny thing about intimacy is that at the end of the day, when it comes to intimacy, intimacy is a tremendous threat to our roles and strategies. Real intimacy is a tremendous threat to our roles and strategies. There's something, when two people really become intimate, or even if a person becomes intimate with something in their experience, you know, like meditating on the breath or you know, whatever, anything like that, really, you can't hold on to your strategies. You can't hold on to your fixed position in intimacy. There's something about intimacy that undermines the apparent solidity of of your fixed position. So what do you mean by fixed position in intimacy? Is it the same that you were talking about, like the behavior that you think you should exuberate rather than just be who you are? Uh, no, I th um, by the way, I think it's a good thing to train in skills and learn behaviors. I think it's a good thing. And I was just pointing out that you made the distinction between behaviors and so on and who you are. You're not mm -hmm. saying, you know, you're taking on certain feminine role and using certain feminine uh, you know, doing certain feminine things, uh, and that makes you feel a certain way, and it, it has a good effect in your relationship. But you, but you did say, well, you didn't say that's not all I am. But I'm assuming that when you said that's not me, you meant that's not all you are. There's more to you than just that one expression. You know, that's the point I'm making. And so that when mm -hmm. we think about masculine and feminine, it's good to uh, remember that we're more than that. It's fine to investigate it. Fine to, you know, plumb the depths of what does it mean femininity to me in its many different contexts. What does it mean, masculinity to me in its yeah. many different contexts? So when, as long as you remember that that's not all we are. Mm, so uh, could you clarify this? Because I thought this is really interesting. You said intimacy is a threat to roles and strategies that are fixed. What do you mean by that? Sometimes I say that there's no informed consent when it comes to intimacy. And what I mean by that is you don't know what you're going to get when you're intimate with something or someone. I can hear your baby yes, in the background. Yes, my baby's screaming in the background. <laughs> it's very distracting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's not distracting. It's yeah. funny. I just I just heard it and I, I thought it was very uh, very funny. So anyway, you, you don't know what you're going to get. You know. Uh, now, mm -hmm. uh, very often we relate to each other as you know we summarize each other. I look at you, you look at me, and you know I stop really paying attention to you, and I sort of I basically work on. I work on summary, a summary of what I think you are. I, I work on, I sort of relate to you. That's why very often I relate to you uh, as I expect you to be, as opposed to how you're actually presenting. And very, that's how, you know, our brain does that. We kind of summarize our environment and we don't operate completely intimately with everything at all at the same time. We just don't. We tend to notice differences, threats, or, you know, if something's a threat or if something's an opportunity, we'll notice that in our environment. But generally, when you're walking from your bedroom to your bathroom in the morning, you're not sensorially 100% open to all the, you know, the sensory inflow coming in. You're, you're sort of summarized the route, you know, and you barely even pay attention. That's why people can drive to work and not even realize that they've, they've driven to work, you know. <laughs> and so, but intimacy is some, something else. Intimacy is where we deliberately or, or even accidentally tune into the sensations, the raw sensory data that reveals the presence of, in a relationship, the person, you know. And if you're, if you're with somebody and you're paying attention to them, they're endlessly surprising, endlessly unpredictable. Even in their predictability, there's a freshness, there's a newness, uh, there's an immediacy to it. And there's something about, you can't really plan for that. You can't really strategize that. And even the best strategy you know, eventually is is undermined by the freshness of what's actually happening, you know. And so I think intimacy in that sense has a way of undermining who we think we are because we're not who we think we are, 
You know, we also ourselves are changing <laughs> constantly. So surprising, so mysterious, so unpredictable. Even in our predictability, there's a mystery and a wonder to our routine habits that's just so marvelously empty of any kind of fixedness, you know. And so I think, you know, there's a saying from the master Lin Chi or Rinzai that inside every human being is an authentic person with no fixed position. <laughs> Um, and I think when we really experience ourselves, we experience a tremendous forward momentum of change and freshness and uh, eruption constantly of ourselves into being, moment-by-moment basis. Uh, it's really staggering that the thing even appears to hold together, I think. you know, It's just so, it's like a nuclear reactor <laughs> mm. in a way. So that, that's the case of someone else. You really look at somebody, you think, my God. Every part of that person is in flux. Every part of them is shifting. You know, they're more space than they are matter if you look at them on the atomic level. To look at someone and ponder that and to see that the the respiration is happening, there's change happening, the blood is flowing, the synapses are firing. It's just totally baffling. And it's I don't think it's possible for a kind of a fixed position to survive a thorough contact with that kind of dimension of experience. Wow. Steve, you just completely blew my mind. I think I just need to come to one of your and Michaela's workshops because I, yeah. I should emphasize that this isn't how we talk in our workshops all the time. <laughs> you know, uh, Michaela, if you listen to her and she's much more coherent than I am. Yeah, but what I love yeah. what you're saying. And actually, you know, thank you because you've helped me solidify this whole idea and how I explain it to oh. my audience and to my clients. Because I often think about this and, you know, women often ask me, for example, but what about, you know, when we talk about feminine, masculine, whatever, and when they ask me, well, but what about a woman's ability to, let's say, provide for herself and have a good financial sense and like go through life, you know, and all of that. And I unknowingly, and now that I've spoken mm-hmm. to you, I think I have further solidified you know, how I do this or how I do my work is that I kind of intuitively tell them that, well, first and foremost, you have to be self-sufficient and you have to be working on your self-worth and your beliefs as a human. And then I, I guess in my mind, I've kind of put it, you know, as a priority Maybe it relates to what you've been saying before as a hierarchy of values, but how I see, you know, humans in relationships, feminine mess, it's like first and foremost, it's like, who are you as a human? And I think that's what you are alluding to in this conversation, like primarily, who are we as people? How does this all work? And and then on the secondary layer, how I show up in the relationship primarily in our gender roles with my husband, but also how I show up in the world or choose to show up in the world in a more of a feminine way because I it makes me feel a certain way. I feel more relaxed and actually more fulfilled. And I've actually interviewed a man on this podcast who is, I would say, the direct opposite of me on the polarity spectrum where he actually says, when I do these masculine behaviors, and he is a man who, it was very clear he has explored these behaviors and maybe... I don't know, maybe it's all a joke. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe, (laughs) you know, because we're all constantly changing, but it seems to work. So you have helped me understand this, that there are people out there or women who still want what I want. Therefore, they're attracted to my work. And then you went into this constant state of change and intimacy and that completely blew my mind that I I think I'll be processing this going forward for for quite a few days. So thank you for that. Um, Unfortunately, we have to finish. And so the, I just have two last things to ask you. Yeah. Wow. Um, So the first one is, uh, Steve, do you recommend some people or teachers and books or just one teacher or people that you recommend following or you find inspiring and a book or two that you also recommend to all of our female listeners uh, listening uh, to read and follow? Uh, Yeah. In in terms of um, this sort of area, you mean, that we've been discussing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. More, I guess, like gender roles or feminine masculinity or just um, just life or intimacy. I think intimacy is a very, very interesting concept that I'd love to explore more. And I think women as well. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I mean, I always recommend Michaela, Michaela mm-hmm. Bowen. 
you know, that's the reason that I work with her because I think she's just so great. And so, uh, you know, she's got all these podcasts and she's got a, a book that came out last year, The Wild Woman's Way, yeah. which is a book for, you know, for women, about women and really nuanced advice. It doesn't sort of uh, exploit, it, it doesn't sort of uh, whip up dissatisfaction and kind of exploit that in a sense. It's really good sound advice for women from someone who's, you know, has a lot of experience. So uh, I recommend that uh, very highly, Michaela Bohem, mm-hmm. The Wild Woman's Way. All right. And uh, her episode is number 106 for all the listeners. You can go ahead and listen to that because that's been fascinating. All right. Great. Well, Steve, thank you so much for everybody who wants to know more about your work and uh, get into this multidimensional view yep. of everything <laughs> that you teach. And I know you teach about a lot of things. And so tell us where can they find you and more information about who you are and maybe your workshops mm-hmm. and um, yeah, your work. Yeah, well, www.guraviking.com is the place to find me, you know. And, you know, you've asked very deep questions, I think, anyway, <laughs> or, or questions with very far-reaching and multi-dimensional, as you say, implications. So that's why we're sort of, I'm sort of thinking out loud with you here, we're having this discussion yeah. about it, you know. But yeah. uh, there, are, I think there are easier questions in life to answer <laughs> than the ones you're asking. They're quite profound. <laughs> yes, like, Steve, what did you have for breakfast today? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Well, you can answer exactly. that. We shall finish with this simple question to ease oh. everything out, to just let go. <laughs> yeah, I had a cup of coffee and a croissant. There you go. There you go. This Light morning. and easy. Light and easy. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I really appreciate it. And I know these are serious questions, you know, and I know that it's so hard to, like, give to talk about the meaning of life or all of that in an hour, you know, and it's, um, yeah, so I appreciate you being patient with me and then trying your best to answer and in, in a very concise way, actually, I think I, I got a lot out of it and then our listeners as well. So thank you so much, Steve. <laughs> oh, good. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Anna. Thank you. All right, girlfriend, before I 